Welcome to the Force Matters podcast, powered by Motusi. I'm J.D. Romick. And I'm Jonathan Ang. We're here to have disruptive, inclusive, and informative dialogue at the intersection of technology, research, and clinical practice. Our promise to sort through the BS so you don't have to. Our focus is what matters to your musculoskeletal health. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Force Matters podcast. Today we have on a member of our motion science team, Matt Walsh. We are going to do a deep dive into running today and considerations when it comes to treating our runners, whether they're novice, recreational, or elite athletes. We dive deep into some great topics, but this is only part one. We could probably have, I don't know how many episodes, probably 100, maybe more on running. So we hope to dive into some more topics in the future with Matt as well. But this is part one of our two-part series with Matt Walsh covering the topic of running. All right. Enjoy. Matt, welcome. And if you you wouldn't mind giving us uh, just some of your your highlights and your high points about your background in the world of PT. This is the uh, toot my own horn list, Mm -hmm. um, which I'm never entirely happy or comfortable about. Of course. Um, But I trained in Australia, uh, have lived and worked most of my life now in the US, although I had uh, a stint of about 10 years in Canada. When I was in Canada, I um, was lucky enough to do some work with uh, the Canadian under 21 rugby team, um, the Canadian uh, cross country ski team, and um, provincially at 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 a Alberta level at a downhill team as well. That's awesome. So sort of team stuff was interesting. Uh, I've worked in a variety of sports med clinics. It's predominantly mm-hmm. been a, a sort of an orthopedic sports life for me. Um, and so when I moved to the States, um, that led me to kind of getting connected in the running community down here, which I was already doing in Canada. It's been a common theme for me. And, um, and so in the US, I have done some work with... Um, the PGA golf tour for a little bit, just as a, as a sort of a backup person for a, another group. Um, and, uh, and then when I moved down towards Portland, I started working with Alberto Salazar and his Oregon mm-hmm. project when it first started um, that Dave McHenry took over and was very successful with and worked with Dave for a number of years. And through that, got to see a lot of interesting elite and recreational athletes and now I, I pretty much focus on recreational athletes although I have my smattering of pros um, and amidst all that sort of as an ongoing thing I've always been involved in the other things that make me Australian which is you know <laughs> play some rugby coach some rugby <laughs> yeah uh, get involved in this non-contact version of it called touch rugby um, and so that's happened here in Portland and yeah. that community's sort of deep in my heart and uh, and then other sort of various bits that are related to it, whether it's swimming related or triathlons and so on. You know what I put together too is when you were, so I did one of my clinical rotations at Nike with Colleen Little oh, yeah. and Alberto Salazar was there running with lots of the Oregon Project or Project Oregon and um, I'm pretty sure you were there one day during my clinical rotation working with one of the runners and I had remembered this after maybe you had mentioned you worked with Colleen or you knew Colleen and it's like I think I remember you because of course you're Australian so that's hard to forget but I think you were in there just one day out of the 
I don't know, 12 week clinical I had there. And I just put that together and it's funny that we're kind of reuniting in different avenues. But what, uh, what was it like living in Canada versus the US slash maybe Australia? Which is your favorite place? Ooh, favorite's a hard one. Um, because I should, I should start backwards is that mm-hmm. my favorite place is where my family is. Yeah. Is so my, my kids are here uh, and my grandkids are here. So my favorite place is here. Yeah. Um, lifestyle wise, things are different in different countries. I loved living in Canada because I was, you know, sort of bright eyed and bushy tailed. Uh, and so I fell in love with the mountains. So mm-hmm. I was living in Calgary for a long time and I learned how to ski and hike and climb and all those things. Yeah. I had a, a mate who would just kind of call me every Friday and say, this is what you are doing this weekend. Um, and I just, you know, weekends and weekends and weekends of craziness. So I loved that. I loved suddenly, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in learning through movement. It's always been my thing. Um, I won't act my age and, and that often gets me into trouble. And so um, From people that are lame, because <laughs> we should all not act our age. It's a, it's a, it's a healthy thing to, to stretch the boundaries of movement. Mm-hmm. And so that's always been a theme. And I think that as an Australian, it's cliche to say this, but we, but we do like to do a little bit of adventuring. We like to sort of throw ourselves out there a bit. It's sort of the, the sort of stylized version of what this Aussie boy is meant to be about. So, yeah, that was my upbringing. Do I like Australia? Of course I love Australia. Why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many things that I didn't love about it. You know, there's a whole macho culture that I could do without. Um, and I was ready to be done with the rugby community in that version of what it was in the 1980s. Um, you know, it's a different thing now. So I think I've learned that, you know, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if I come back to the, to the movement theme, I mean, it's always been a movement theme. It's always been my lifelong theme. My dad made this joke with me a while ago of reminding me that when I was a kid, I would run and I was a decent runner, um, but I was fascinated by running. And so I would actually watch my shadow when I was running, when I was a kid. And, you know, terribly egotistical of me, of course, that I was sort of most interested in my form and nobody else's. Um, and then as a, as a sort of an early teenager, I had some nervous little habits that I had with my hands. Like I would sort of play with my fingers all the time and make little, little rings with them. But I would also do this thing where I put my fingers on the table and I would make my fingers run. And so I would have this little running fingers across the table and I would sort of practice the mechanics of running. So I was a little obsessive compulsive about running in some way, shape or form kind of all my life. That's really interesting. And I look at the state of our world with how little people move now, or at least how we lose that sense of this childlike spirit about play and um, going out with your friends, you call them mates, and I love that. I just there's so many things I love about the culture of Australia and the the spirit of play and being outside. Maybe it's a Portland thing too because it's so gloomy and rainy. But you know, indoor playgrounds, you have you know PE with your friends. It's there's a spirit, this childlike spirit. I feel like that we lose. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on like why do we lose that? Why do we lose that childlike energy? And you say it gets you into trouble, probably from people that don't play and engage in that. I think that's the place to start, is that I think the reason why we're losing our play is because we think it gets us into trouble that's problematic. 
when trouble is a is a place to learn. Um, I work with some really lovely athletes, just so spoiled with these humans who cross my path. And one of my favorite people is a professional rugby player. She's on the women's national team. Shout out to Rachel, who um, who's a great thinker. You know, she's a she's a a fearful thing on the field. She's a strong, strong woman. And she's a strong, strong woman in, in so many other departments as well. Um, and she and I were chatting about this concept of what is training? You know, training is exploring the boundary between, between itself and, and stress and trauma. And that there's this sort of spectrum there that you go into this stressful place that is almost traumatic and you come back home. Um, and you have a safe place to come back home, right? And so that's recovery. <laughs> so you keep thinking about that as an athlete, that, that the longer you have a really safe place of home, the more you build this base, the more you can venture into things that are truly novel, maybe pseudo or partially traumatic, and your body has this amazing recuperative power that it can come back safely back home and you're ready for the next one. It's a fascinating thought, right? That's great because I also think about, you know, as a physio, the border between like injury, like stress and injury, it's like when we, when our bodies fail to adapt to the load and the stress put on them, that's when injury happens. And pre, you know, those moments, like you're building up, obviously breaking down the body to build it up in a weird way. But then once you cross a certain threshold, that's when the injury happens. So how do you, you know, train up to that point while not pushing your body into that, you know, that plastic mode of then you break it. That's an interesting thought. I like that. So circling back to the kids, I think that what happened was we all had to live happily under the, uh, under the rainbow. We all got a little safe and cautious and protected. Um, we developed the helicopter parent sort of mentality where, you know, kids don't get hurt. My kids don't get hurt. I've got to keep them safe. I've got to put extra pads on them. I've got to, don't climb that tree, Johnny, because you might fall. And so Johnny learns, I might fall. Mm. So maybe what I'll do now is when Johnny grows up, he will or she will find a way to basically control the environment that they take risks in. Very controlled. And so I think of things like, you know, getting into gyms where everything is manicured and perfect. Mm. Nothing's going to fall off the shelf and hit you in the head. Um, but it will in the, in, in the wild or it will in the, the sort of the, the chaos of a game. Uh, and so I think that the more that we have that sort of creative movement variability with risk in it, the better it is. I've been loving listening to a guy, um, Craig Harrison, who's a Kiwi. Um, and he's part of this podcast and research and sport development kind of group. And he's talking a lot to coaches, but he talks a lot to researchers as well. And play is a central theme to what he's talking about, of like keeping play where it should be and then learning how to manipulate play in, in different ways as we, get, as we get older so that we get really accurate capacities to have the sort of perception-action coupling kind of worked out, um, that we can make good decisions in, in the split of an eye, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And looking at the aging population too, the more strength, lean muscle, agility, balance, the better all of your faculties are because you train them, the less likely you are to break a hip, for example, or have a worse injury. 
Um, for me, my goal is when I'm 100, I want to be able to lift 100 pounds or deadlift 100 pounds or something like that. But just keeping your body young and healthy is, is so important. I love those thoughts. So deviating a little bit into running, one of my questions for you is how important is our running form? Because you see people in 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons, people running with all different types of body types, shapes, sizes, and some people look like they're hurting when they're running, but they may not have any pain or they may not actually be in pain. They just have a different running form. How important is our form? So let's, let's carry through the theme of what we started with. Okay. And let's say that um, variability is really healthy. Um, but you need to have, you know, you can deviate off the main branch of the river. You can go to tributaries and, and explore and create and so forth. But you need to have a strong deep river to start with. So you need to have something that you can trust and move through and your tissues and your movement apparatus needs to learn how to do that well. Even if that involves a flailing leg, even if that involves an arm that flicks out to the side, even if that means your, your chin is forward, you need to find a groove and you need to train in that groove for a long period of time. I think that if we stick with this idea of movement variability, that there are, there are phenomenally variable ways of moving as a runner. Um, the common themes are pretty important that you need to be able to absorb and generate force, that you need to be able to do that in a safe way that's effective for your capacity. And that's probably the bigger emphasis is for your capacity. So your capacity might be, I can control internal rotation up to 50 degrees and I can control 30 degrees of knee valgus because I've done it all my life. And so I run like a duck. Um, I'm not saying I do, but, <laughs> but course, maybe I do. Of course not. <laughs> um, but, but sort of the metaphorical me of, of, of just saying, you know, there are people who do that and do that very well. And there are plenty of, of great examples across the spectrum. You use the recreational one. You know, there are brilliant ones in the, in the elite model as well. They're not as common because it's not as efficient because hence you know the, the the reality is is that we're trying to move in a straight line very fast when we're in the elite level in the recreational level we're not so we can afford to have some meandering across the road and across the trail and across our lives mm -hmm. um, so I think that to come back to the, the sort of this what's a simple question but it's a really complicated question is does does form matter uh, it matters as long as it as it matters as a lot when you can't control the forces. Mm -hmm. um, so when the system starts to break down, then the way that you are directing those forces is critical. And if the way that you're directing the forces is a cumulative breakdown of multiple levels creating abnormal stresses across given tissue or given tissues, then you're gonna to have to change those forces. And the way you change your forces is both by improving the capacity of the tissues and the system, but also by improving forces a directional vector. So by improving the shape of which you put it all together and that's posture. Mm -hmm. So it's not an easy answer because I say to people, sometimes I'm giving them the, the, the sort of the, uh, the barbell physio approach, which is to say what matters most is to get your capacity up. That's the low hanging fruit. And so we've got to get you stronger and we're not going to talk about form dramatically. We're going to say, pick that thing up in a safe and effective way, 
generate the output, build your capacity, or we're gonna say you just need to be stronger in this force acceptance component of, of your running. Let's work on that. That will dissipate the forces in a certain way. It may not change the direction of the force because we're not changing your shape yet. And we let their nervous system sort it out. It's done it pretty well so far. It's only a single episode. That's great. But when it's a, you've been hit by the same bus three or four times, then it might be time to, you know, to get off the road and get on a bus stop. You know, like find yourself a place where the forces and the directions are much more safe for you. So that would mean changing your form. And people go down all sorts of rabbit holes in form. Um, a guy that I work with, he's a friend that I also work with as a patient um, recently. And I'd made some sort of comment to him about, you know, your, your engine, your, your core, your central stability, your lower body is carrying this weight. And as long as you sort of park that weight on top of the engine quite well, safely, then you can fly down the track. Um, how, you, how you balance that upper quarter, how you get it together, um, is, it, is essentially finding a groove. You know, so it's kind of finding an efficient groove. But there are still rules around that. So do I think that having your arms way out in front of your body is going to be efficient? Not really, it's a long lever. Why don't we shorten the lever? Do I think that poking your chin forward when you're running is gonna make things any easier for the base of your C-spine? Not really. It might improve the efficiency of your breathing if you're a mouth breather, you reduce some airflow, but is it going to help you get into a better position for your lumbar spine, which is gonna make the engine work harder? Probably not. So maybe we could find a way to bring your thoracic spine up, make it easier for your neck, so you can be in a place where you can still breathe with a forward head posture, but you're actually over the top of your pelvis. But I don't want to get people into putting them in a box. I'm a big believer in that, mm -hmm. that I love the individuality and the, and the plasticity of the way people adapt and choose shape and generate it into movement. So letting that happen um, without sounding too groovy is, is organic. What's up, Force Matters listeners? We interrupt you for a word from our sponsor, Motusi Corporation. Our engineered athletic wear is designed to be used in any training environment, in the clinic, the gym, at home, or in the field. We do more than movement analysis. We use AI and proprietary algorithms to generate deeper insights related to movement quality and injury. The Motusi app's 3D insights immerses athletes into their movement and the insights that help them progress their performance or recovery. But be careful, this tech isn't just for athletes. It's great at those that want to be more active or those that may have a lingering injury or something that's painful, and it gives us insights to be able to diagnose and assess what could really be going on. For more information, head over to motusi.com and see how Motusi's data is helping physical therapists provide better data-driven care. Now, enjoy the podcast. I was going to ask you another question or a kind of like, not a myth necessarily, but you kind of touched on it, which is um, there's this phrase that goes around that... Um, People like to run to train, but they really need to train to be able to run. I think it's kind of had arguments on both sides, 
But I'm curious what your thoughts are on that statement. If that's something that you tell runners, if that's something you've heard people regurgitate. And I, I feel like you did touch on it some, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that phrase. So I think that um, physios can get a little high and mighty sometimes about the importance of what we do relative to what our athletes have to do mm -hmm. to get better at what they're doing. Um, and training is still the center of the universe. Putting more miles on your feet or under your feet, whichever way you say it, um, is still the critical thing. So, so learning how to train well and progress your training and move your training up and down. You know, those are the majors. When we look at the causes of injury, it's really training error most of the time. It's you know, spikes and troughs in our, in our load that we have put on a system that's not ready for it. So I'm gonna say, first of all, training is the key and building that up progressively and backing it down appropriately as your body adapts. That's, that's number one. But I think that along the way, some people are naturally great movers. And as they do that, they learn the efficiency time and time again. They're reflective movers. So there are reflective thinkers and there are reflective movers. And reflective movers are not the ones who always just watch their shadows, but they are the ones who think about how they move and how they're moving efficiently. They're like this felt better when, and you hear that phrase, you're like, okay, this is gonna be an easy one mm -hmm. because I can give them some tools and they'll just go play with them in an appropriate way and put training on it. Um, but there are folks who, who don't have that skill set, who maybe for other reasons have had trauma that's forced them to not have that skill set, or that they've been convinced or taught through their upbringings that that's not something that's, that's important or in their wheelhouse. Um, so they might need a little bit of a, a sort of a running for dummies kind of a moment uh, where you've got to break down their belief system and work out what is driving it because that's often going to limit any success you get. And then you need to be able to say, okay, well, let's work on a skill that you can develop some success with, whether that's changing your posture, whether that's adding some load into your system that you haven't been doing. Do I believe that strengthening is critical for runners? Like that sort of building capacity so that they can run more efficiently? Absolutely. That's a Used to say it in more sort of sit on the fence terms, now very, very clear about it. Yes, absolutely. Um, and as I get older, more and more so, mm -hmm. because I'm sort of preaching it to my peers and saying like, we need to do this, because if we don't, we don't get to lift 100 pounds when we're 100 years old yeah. and play with our great grandkids or whatever it might be. Um, so if this answers your question, I think that training is central, mileage is key, building it, forcing it, challenging it, all that sort of boundary stuff. And that will solve a lot of problems. But backing that up, for some folks, we need to work on the shape, posture, form, technique. And they, uh, if you get a great connection with them, they'll gobble it up. Um, but it needs to be very systematic because they're not naturally doing it by just putting one foot in front of the other. So you need to give them very deliberate progressions. And strengthening really matters. Is there a way that you progress someone either intuitively or objectively and know when they're ready for the next step? Like whether it's increasing their mileage or 
say they're on a training pro program, I know everybody's individual, how do you approach that and how do you know when to progress a runner to more? Okay, so there's a, there's a lot of mores in the, in the question. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's more mileage, more speed, more technical work, um, more intensity obviously, um, more load, mm -hmm. uh, more recovery. You know, so all of those things are part of creating the sort of the whole athlete. Um, I think of myself, and maybe you've used this analogy as well, so maybe I stole it from you, of, um, of like I'm a, um, I'm a sound engineer and I've got my graphic equalizer in front of me with all the dials that I don't really understand fully, but I know there's a lot of dials. And in the center of this sort of console is the is the intensity dial like it's the big button mm -hmm. it's the one that i need to dial up and dial down and be really smart about how i do it and what i'm listening for from the athlete and in some regards from their body if i know them over enough time to see how their body's behaving are examples of how they're not doing things well that says to me you're either overreaching or you're under recovering at this moment so it's not a time to progress and then when i see sassiness and sharpness and crispness in their movement and an exuberance and questioning nature to their personality and it looks like it's good on paper that they've been in the training phase for a long enough period of time to have really established it then we'll move to the next level so it's a really complicated question because there's so many um, ends of one but i'll give you an example uh, so I'm working with an athlete at the moment who has come off a really fantastic result um, as a trail runner um, and in that race took a nasty tumble but often takes tumbles mm -hmm. in these races uh, and so has been struggling a little bit with tissue recovery since that race. So there's already the, the trauma of a very, very long race uh, at an elite level and then there's the trauma of completely taking off all the skin down the side of the, of the femur and, um, and getting a little bit of deep hematoma going on there as well. So weeks have gone past and training's improving, mileage is increasing steadily again, starting to put some light workouts in, comes into a strength and conditioning session the other day and is scatty, like just isn't really her kind of snappy self um, and I throw a couple of bumps at her uh, just to sort of see where she's at and those are physical bumps like I'll actually bump her during the session um, in a sort of a playful way because we do this for just working on coping with the unexpected while you're fatigued and she doesn't respond the way she normally responds so she's a little sloppy in the response and it's not the time and the place during a class full of people to say you know what's going on dear um, but it's obvious that there's something that's not quite there, right? So when I get a text the next day saying, I'm a little frustrated, I need to start doing some speed work because I've got next event coming up, the response is, you're not ready yet. Mm. So you've got to just hang for a bit. You've got to be patient. Um, you're not, your body's not snapping into this and that's not a problem and it's not your dilemma and you're not a bad person because it's not behaving well, but it's just taken a little bit longer. But it also means looking at the big picture. So this person's about to you know, write a very difficult exam as well as work as a professional athlete. 
So there's two conflicting worlds going on at the same time, so stress is difficult. So we say, all right, focus on the exam for the next week and a half, two weeks, keep your training on the same level, and let's do some sort of re-evaluation when we come back, not just the typical output measures of your quad is back up to snuff, your jump looks better, um, your control is back online again, but how do you feel? So that sort of, all those things come into making the next level decisions. All right, and that concludes the first part of our two-part series with Matt. Next week, we're going to dive a little deeper into recovery as well as some biopsychosocial considerations for our patients and really measuring what matters in terms of subjective um, subjective reporting from our patients. So really looking forward to diving deep again with Matt. And until then, keep moving. You've been listening to the Force Matters podcast. We appreciate you tuning in and really want to hear from you. If you have questions you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, you can find us at motusi.com on our blog page or DM us on Instagram at motusicorp. See you next time. And until then, keep moving.